I'm reading to you this morning from Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay, lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. When we began our series looking at these different faces or these different aspects of who Jesus is, we began in chapter 4 of Luke where Jesus' public ministry began and where he was really a small town celebrity beginning to be known and, and certainly attracting attention, but nowhere near as big as we see he is by sort of the middle of chapter 5. We see here that his, his name, his renown has spread through every village in Galilee from Judea to Jerusalem. Uh, and many of these villages had heard about him and the power that he brought and the healing that he was bringing. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 5 of the book of Luke, Jesus is a true A-lister in Jerusalem and Judea and around Galilee. The ordinary and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have all come to see him. They're all curious. They want to be healed. They, they taste the promise of what he's bringing and this is without any promotions without any mtv without any spotify playlists with no transportation no buses everyone is flocking from all over just to see jesus and who he is no advertising no transportation and he is playing to packed houses by the time we get to chapter five he is a preacher who can really preach and a healer who can really heal and people want to come and see him. He's walking the walk, and he's talking the talk. And in this story, we see two small groups that represent different pieces that are the focus of the passage. Firstly, we see some men and a paralytic, and then we see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we're going to look at each of those separately. So let's jump in with the some men and the paralytic. What do we know about them? Not very much. They are coming to the one with the power to heal. Let me read verses 18 to, uh, to, 20, to, to 19. Some men came carrying a paralytic man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. 
When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered him on the mat, threw the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. So we don't know much about him. He's defined simply as paralytic. He's defined, in a sense, by his brokenness, by his dependency, his dependency on some men. He's having to rely on everyone for everything. And I don't know about you, but I do everything I can to avoid being defined by my own brokenness. I know what it's like to have people look at me as if there's something wrong with me. And in fact, these object lessons just come at just the right time. In fact, that's what's so hard about programs like AA and NA and, and um, SL and A. All of these narcotics or, or alcohol or sex addictions, they begin when you go to those groups by standing around and saying, I am an alcoholic, I am a, an addict, I am addicted to, to lust and to sex. And then they say that to one another. And that public profession of brokenness and that dependency on God in the very first step, that's hard. That's really hard. And people often resist and push back against those programs for that reason. And that's why they're called sex and love or alcoholics or narcotics anonymous because people don't want to know outside of that community that people are in there because they feel embarrassed. There's some sort of shame. We don't want to be seen in those lights with that brokenness. Having to rely on someone else, having to declare our brokenness and our dependency. And I've had a small taste of physical brokenness when I was, uh, oh, I don't know, perhaps two or three years into being uh, in the pastorate. Uh, Patty was down south uh, at, the, uh, at her family's beach house with the kids and I was working up here and she was coming back and we were all heading to France and I was at a friend's house playing pickleball and my Achilles heel ruptured. I was rushed to the hospital and I was rushed back to my bed. I was given all sorts of painkillers. I couldn't move. I had to sit in bed. Patty, poor old Patty, had to fly back with the kids as an emergency. We had to cancel our trip to, to France, something we'd been really looking forward to. I had to lie in bed while I was given food and medication was brought to me. Uh, and I'm not a super good patient. So uh, being nursed, missing a trip, having to deal with a grumpy patient, there was a lot of cost both to me in that small period of brokenness, but also to Patty and the kids who missed out on that vacation and had to gather around and nurse me. And this was the paralytic man's whole life. I'm sure he was sick of his brokenness. I'm sure he was sick of not being able to walk. I was sick of being dependent on other people. And I'm sure, quite honestly, as much as they may have loved him, I'm sure that his family and his friends were also sick of him being broken and having to deal with that brokenness. I'm sure they were tired, that they were worn down by it. So what do they do? Of course, they carry him to this A-list teacher and healer. Here's our hope. Here's what we can do about this. Everybody's talking about him. Let's take him to the preacher and the healer. Let's get the burden of brokenness off our back. And they get there, and of course, the crowds are too big. Maybe they arrive late. They can't get in. And they're looking all around. And saying, what are we going to do? There's no way we can get to Jesus. 
So they take a pretty bold step. They climb up on the roof. They cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. Now we hear that passage and it's said so matter-of-factly in Luke. But just imagine I'm preaching right now and suddenly the sheetrock starts to fall. And there's no OSHA here. There's no health and safety laws. These guys are up on the roof, making a hole in it, lowering someone through, risking their own safety. And I got to bet that if I was preaching and the roof started to fall, you would stop listening to me. Like the, the sermon isn't going to go on, right? There's a big disruption. And what would be the reaction? I'm sure it would be more than just raised eyebrows. Oh, here's another person lowering someone through the hole in the roof. <laughs> This is not a typical thing that happens and, and you imagine that people are pretty upset and all the people outside that are looking in are like, how dare you cue cut by climbing on the roof and lowering this person down to Jesus. The reaction would be quite profound but Luke is just giving us this very sort of gentle factual uh, account here. So their mouths are open, the preaching would have stopped, there would have been a lot more than just raised eyebrows going on. Now, all of those reactions are contrasted to Jesus' reaction. Jesus sees this as a wonderful act of faith. He says, how far you are willing to go to bring this man to me. How far you're willing to go to, to, to sit before me, to lie before me. And he recognizes that in them and, and says that to them. This is how much you're willing to do to come to me. So how does he react in verse 20? Let me read it to you. I'm, what are you expecting? I'm expecting a profound miracle here. Get up, run, dance. What does he say in verse 20? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, but I have an anticlimactic reaction to this. Right? I'm not sitting there thinking, Wow, what a response. All Jesus has said is, I forgive your sins. And... You know, my first reaction is, why talk about this religious idea of sin? Can't you see that this guy's life is a mess? Can't you see that he's in trouble? Can't you see that there's a whole lot going on for him? And here you are talking about sin and forgiveness? This guy needs to be healed. Where are you going with this, Jesus? Now, Luke does not, does not engage us with the man's response, with the paralytic's response. We don't know what happened. We don't know if he was disappointed, if he felt it was anticlimactic. Certainly, they lived in a different culture to the culture that we live in. And they had a very strong religious connection between your state of being in the world, whether that be your financial state, your status, or your physical health, and how you were perceived or appreciated by God. So it's quite possible that he thought not being forgiven by God was the reason that, or, or being a sinful man was the reason that he was a paralytic. And we see that in two other pieces of scripture. That often quoted one which says, it is harder for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And we think, what a condemnation of rich people. But actually, when Jesus said that, what he meant for the reaction of the crowd was, wow, even someone who is healthy and blessed and has status, who clearly has favor from God in that religious culture, not even they, not even they can get into the kingdom of God. And then we see in, in chapter 9 of John, when the blind man is healed and John says, and Jesus rubs the mud into his eyes and sends him off to get healed. And the disciples ask, 
Why was he born blind? Why was he born blind? Was it because his father sinned or his mother sinned? And Jesus says, no, no, that's not what's going on here. You can't make that direct line between the sinfulness of the person necessarily and the affliction or their status or their wealth. So Jesus has run that correction, but the predominant thinking in the culture of the time is your status, your health, your wealth is a direct reflection of how God views you. So it's possible in a religious culture like this that the paralytic man was excited by that. Certainly there is more to his identity now than just paralytic man. Now he's paralytic man forgiven by God. And I suspect that if Jesus had begun and just given him his legs back, he would have had certainly some mobility. He would have been able to get up and run around. But perhaps he could also believe he could heal himself. He could work. He could buy stylish clothes. He could develop an impressive resume. He could make new friends and he could go out being a good person. Healing without forgiveness would have left him as just another self-saving individual. Now, our culture is not like that culture. Our culture is not big on talking about sin. Being forgiven by God for your sins in the general culture that we live in almost feels trite or nebulous. It doesn't really have any strong meaning in the culture around us. And that's partly because the way our media works. When you see, someone on TV, see something on TV, you see the picture of those people who are starving in Africa. Or you see the devastation that happens, uh, homeless caused by a war in a refugee camp. Or you see the devastating poverty in some sort of slum in the inner city. You see that suffering, that visual suffering, and it makes an impression on us. And we say, heal that, heal that, fix that. What are we going to do to fix that? But the TV can't get in to the corners of our heart. It can't see the ugliness. It can't see the contortions. It can't see the distortions. It can't see the revulsion that's inside, the dirtiness that's inside our hearts. So we need a correction too. Just like that culture needed a correction, we need a correction too. We need to recognize that sin does cause suffering, that mobility isn't the answer. Now, there is not a direct line between our sin all the time and the suffering we experience. But we bring suffering and brokenness and pain into the world when we sin. And mobility is not the answer. Mobility alone is not the answer. When life is a mess, it doesn't help if we just change friends, change jobs, change churches, change locations, which is often the approach that we use in the culture today. Guess what? The mess inside our heart comes with us. So Luke doesn't tell us how the paralytic man reacted to having his sins forgiven. But he certainly does tell us how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law react. We see that in verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who's this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can, give in, can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the problem's not with their theology. Actually, their theology is spot on. Their theology is excellent. They understood the seriousness of sin and they understood that it was an act of rebellion against God. And this is hard for us non-religious, for those of us in a non-religious culture 
to wrap our heads around. And we see this sort of thinking in Psalm 51, which is such a powerful psalm. When you think about what David did when he raped Bathsheba, and then because he, she was pregnant, he tried to cover it up by calling her husband back so that he would sleep with her from war, so he would sleep with her. And he didn't because he was faithful to the command that when you're at war, you stay sexually chaste as a sort of a, an act of dedication. And so in David's desperation, he then had Uriah killed so to try to cover up what had happened. So here he is, rape and murder, the king of Israel. And this is what he says in Psalm 51. And it's, I'm just going to read you the first five verses of it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are always with me. And this is the line that I think we really have to internalize. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's confusing, isn't it? Let me give you another example. Because when I hear that, I think, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about the extended families? Why, why aren't you sinning against them? I want you to imagine a high schooler. Worked all through the summer. Every week, long hours in a restaurant washing dishes in order to, to buy his first car. And he's so excited. So he rushes around to his friend's house and he runs inside and he says to his friend, look out the window. So they look out the window and as they're looking out the window, someone who's stolen a garbage truck to get away from the police comes barreling down the road and runs over his brand new car. And the police come and they drag him out and they do a breathalyzer test and he's drunk and he's got no money and so the car is basically crushed and that's the end of the story. And at that point, his friend rushes out to the man as he's being hauled away by the police. And they say, ah, his friend says, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you for driving drunk and risking everyone in the neighborhood. And I forgive you for destroying this car. And the police look at him like, what are you talking about? And the person whose car, the, friend, the person who's brought the car around to show his friend looks at his friend and says, what are you talking about? It's not your car. No one put you at risk. What's going on? What are you talking about? all this forgiveness for. Now, at its core, sin is not about letting yourself or your family or your friends down. At its core, sin is rebellion against God. You see, this is all his creation. We are all his creation. When we sin, his world is broken by us. His children are hurt by us. His image is defiled by us. His wisdom is defied by us. And his love is rejected by us. When we say something, when I say something to hurt Patty, she's been wronged by me for sure. And I should ask her for forgiveness. I certainly should. But at the core of my behavior, is rebellion against God. I have added to the brokenness in God's world. I have hurt one of God's children. I have defiled, defiled God's image. 
I have defied God's wisdom, and I have rejected God's love. At the core of my behavior is rebellion against God. Now, it's ironic, isn't it? We hate it. We absolutely hate it when someone sits in judgment on us. We feel it. We revile it. Who are you to stand in judgment on me? Who do you think you are? Are you God? And the Pharisees hate it when someone acts in forgiveness of sins, when they behave as if they were God too. And we're both right. We're right to be offended when someone sits on judgment on us as if they were God, or if someone pronounces forgiveness for us as if they were God, as if they can forgive the core root ugliness and depravity in our heart as if they were God. Both the Pharisees are right and we are right when we reject that judgment that comes upon us, unless it comes from God. Let me say that again. Unless, unless it comes from God. And you see, this is what the Pharisees' real problem is. They don't recognize Jesus is God. So Jesus tells them and shows them that he's God. Let's read verses 22 through to 25. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what had been lying, the mat he had been lying on and went home praising God. Now, I think it's important for us to realize that that term summon of man is the term that Jesus used to describe himself. He uses that again and again through the Gospels. It's a reference to Daniel. And so they know when he says that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins that he's talking about himself. He is basically saying, I'm healing this man to prove to you that I have the power to forgive sins. And I think it's a really good question, right? It's a really... It's almost a trick question. Which is easier? Which is easier? I want you to think about it. Which is easier? Is it easier? And Jesus actually, the wording is really important here. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Which one do you think is easier? Hands up if you think it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. You've got to commit here. Okay, you think it's easier. Who thinks it's easier to say, get up and walk? All right, so it's interesting, right? I don't think it's actually possible. I think it's actually equally easy to say both. You can say them, but it's very, very hard to do either unless you are God. You cannot forgive sins unless you're God. You cannot, you cannot heal without the authority of God, without God. So that is acts of healing, a God acts. Those acts of forgiveness, a God acts. So in a sense, they're equally easy to say and hard to do. And in fact, by healing, Jesus is demonstrating that he is God in the same way as by forgiving, he's demonstrating he's God. They're both impossible unless you do. But one can be said without being demonstrated. You can easily say to someone, I forgive, God forgives your sins, your sins are forgiven. But what do you have as proof? But here's Jesus again, this A-list preacher and healer who walks the walk that he talks. He talks the talk and he walks the walk. And yes, he is able to say, no, the same power that I have to forgive is the same power that I use to heal. It's a direct claim by God, by Jesus, 
that he's the forgiver of sins, and by definition, this means he's God. But actually, that's not really completely true, what I just said, is it? See, forgiveness can be said without being demonstrated. Now, is that really true? Let's go back to that example of the college kid or the high school kid who got his first car. So what happens after all the dust is cleared and the police have gone and he's had an argument with his friend to sort out what on earth is going on with that weird comment? He's got a smashed car right in front of him. Now, there's a huge debt. He worked a summer's worth of labor to pay for that car. And he's no longer got that car. And nobody's going to replace that car. There's a debt that's owed to him. And who's going to pay that debt down? I tell you what he's going to have to do next summer. He's going to have to live without a car for a year, and next summer he's going to have to work again for a year. So he's going to have to live with the consequences of someone else's sin, and then he's going to have to pay that debt down himself to be restored. There's a huge debt that's owed that only the student can repay himself. Now, what is the cost then? Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. What is the cost? What is the cost for forgiving all the rebellion against God? What is the cost for all the brokenness, forgiving all the brokenness in the world, for healing all the hurt in the world, restoring us to reflect the image of God again, reinstating the wisdom of God? What is the cost to pour out this love into the world? And we know what the cost is. Jesus' forgiveness is poured out, body and blood on the cross, so that we can hear him say to us, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, we know, we know, that that's going to be followed with stand up and walk. Whether that's in this life or the, the life to come. Right? That beginning of restoration is there. But it doesn't come until the world, the brokenness of the world and the brokenness in our hearts is addressed. Until that real forgiveness comes. It is more important, just like this paralytic, that we recognize our dependence and our need to be forgiven than for anything else. That our rebellion is what's brought all this brokenness in the world and that the solution begins by recognizing our dependence on Jesus, not for mobility, but for forgiveness. That we live to hear the words, that we live in the freedom of the words. Friends, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we wallow in our brokenness, sometimes being discouraged by it, sometimes being freed from it by your grace and your mercy. But help us to realize, Father, that Jesus' work on the cross is done and we are forgiven, that we are free in that yes, we have not fully tasted all the work of the kingdom. And yes, that frustrates us. And yes, we continue to rebel. But you have bought us with your blood. You have paid down that debt. And we are fully yours. And you invite us to be fully free. 
Help us like the paralytic man to respond. I just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.